Let's turn to God's Word. So we're going through John's Gospel. As you'll know, if you, you've been coming recently, and, and this week we're up to chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Um, we should have a slide for that. Have a look. There we go. And the question for us to be thinking about as, as Sana comes up and reads in a second, and Sana will give a page number two, is what things do you think these verses show about Jesus' kingship? We're about to see a, a portrait of Jesus' kingship, what kind of a king he is. How many different things can you spot about what kind of a king he is? Sana, come on up. Thank you. Reading is on page 899, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that it would speak to us very powerfully, Lord, would your spirit imprint deeply on our hearts the insights that you needed to put in front of us this morning as a church in these verses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one day a policeman went round to uh, an old farmer and his property and said, I need to inspect your property. I've had uh, reports that you have an illegal plantation here. And the farmer said, no problem. Inspect whatever you want. Just don't go through that gate over there. And the policeman was furious. He said, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power of authority with me? And, and he got a badge out of his pocket and showed it to the farmer and said, this badge gives me the authority to search wherever I want. I don't have to answer any questions, don't have to ask any questions. Do you understand? And the farmer, very polite, just apologized, went back to what he was doing, didn't say anything. And a few minutes later, the farmer heard this scream and he looked up and he saw the officer running for his life across the farm, pursued by the biggest bull on the farm. And at every step, the bull was gaining on the man, closer and closer. It was terrified. And so the farmer dropped his tools and rushed over to the fence and leaned over and shouted, The badge! Show him the badge! <laughs> this morning, we're thinking about authority. And uh, just to you know, play a word association game for a second, what does come into your head? What sort of phrases or images or words come to you when I say the word authority. And I bet some of us are immediately thinking of things like corruption or abuse or harsh. Because as postmoderns, and especially in the case of many of us as, of many of us as millennials who are in postmodernity, um, we'll be instinctively very suspicious about authority. 
But actually, humans have always been like that since time began, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, Henry David Thoreau said, any fool can make a rule, any fool can keep it. Um, Albert Einstein said, unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. And yet, I think if we're honest, there are so many examples in our world of good authority and kind authority and authority that sacrifices its own interests for the, for the benefit of those being led and, and fully justified authority. And maybe they come to mind less than the examples of corrupt authority that we instinctively think of, but authority isn't in itself innately evil. And this morning's passage in John has us considering authority that is the safest, kindest, gentlest, most loving, most justified um, authority in the universe, the authority of Jesus Christ himself, and specifically his kingship. What kind of a king is he? How does he use his authority? And these verses are here to give us a number of insights into that. And so just to quickly recap on where we're up to in John, we're now into the final week before his death. So first half of the gospel, verses one to, uh, chapters 1 to 11, we saw Jesus repeatedly demonstrate his identity through a series of miracles, which John calls signs, because they, they reveal who he really is. And, and following that, the time has now come. The hinge was the climax of those, those miracles over the last couple of weeks, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And now the time has come in the second half for Jesus to fulfill his mission. Having shown who he is, he's now going to go and die for the sins of his people. And the countdown to his death has just begun. It began last week at the beginning of chapter 12 with six days to go until the Passover, until he dies. And John gave us that, that little um, like start of the stopwatch for us. Six days, beginning of chapter 12. And it's now five days to go. Chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, dot, dot, dot. And so from this point, five days to go, this point in John's gospel, we're going to start to see this theme of Jesus' kingship coming out more and more, coming into focus more and more sharply. And let's jump in. Verse 1. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover feast that is, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And by the way, when John says large crowd, that is an understatement. Josephus, fairly, you know, relatively reliable historian of around this time and just after, um, describes the crowds that would typically gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. And it wasn't thousands. It wasn't tens of thousands. It wasn't even hundreds of thousands. About 30 years after this, just one Passover, for example, one Passover, for example, Josephus estimates, through some calculations, he reckons there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. 2 million and plus 700,000. And even if he was exaggerating... I'm guessing there was still a lot of people. So, um, let's have a look. There's, there's a Passover crowd to this day. Um, would have been like that, but all over the city. And Jerusalem's a big city, even 2,000 years ago. And according to verse 13, if we keep reading, this crowd, maybe in the millions, maybe a million at least, um, took maybe at least several hundred thousand, took branches of palm leaves, and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So you've got to imagine potentially hundreds of thousands of people, a, a crowd big enough for the Pharisees to describe it at the end of our passage as being the world. It must have seemed like the world to them. Looking at Jesus, and this crowd is roaring and chanting. And, and they're chanting those words, so maybe 
it wouldn't have been neatly choreographed. You know what crowds are like. Um, but maybe some sections of the crowd were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And other sections of the crowd over here are chanting, King of Israel, King of Israel. And they're all looking at Jesus. Would have been an amazing sight. Would have made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, what's going on there? Seems like a kind of a strange thing to do. Well, palm branches, which they're waving, are a massive symbol of Israelite nationalism. Uh, you, you see palm branches on Jewish coins of the period. Uh, during a revolutionary struggle they had against the Romans. And so to cut down a palm branch and wave it was, was like someone from the deep south in America waving a Republican flag, a Confederate flag. Um, to, it was like uh, an Englishman waving the flag of St. George. Very, very nationalistic. And their words in verse 13, well, that gives away their expectations about Jesus too because the, the words that these thousands, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are, are screaming and chanting at Jesus are a quotation from Psalm 118, which is a psalm all about the Messiah coming to save his people. Except the one bit they're chanting, which isn't in Psalm 118, that they've made up and added on, is the last few words. When they add on, even the king of Israel, which kind of gives away how they're interpreting it. This is all incredibly nationalistic. And the first word of their chant, Hosanna, that literally means, save us now. Implication, from the Romans. Like, save us now, they're, they're, they're chanting. From the Romans is, is kind of the hint. And, and when Jewish people sang and chanted psalms like 118, the tradition was that it was on the word Hosanna that you would wave your palm branch. Hosanna is like the chorus. Whenever you say the word Hosanna, you wave your palm branch like crazy. So imagine countless thousands and thousands and thousands of people with these branches looking at Jesus, chanting, Save us now! Save us now! It would have been an amazing sight. And I think many in the crowd must have been thinking at that moment, this is it. The, the great revolution is about to begin. The, the great overthrow has begun. Uh, let's go and get the swords we've been hiding for years. For this very moment. But it's how Jesus responds to this unbelievable situation, which is the whole point here. Because what he does is he squashes it flat. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a great war horse, which would have been the, the obvious way to affirm the crowd and egg them on, which is exactly what uh, Judas Maccabeus did when he led his rebellion against the Romans. No, Jesus chooses a young donkey. That is laden with symbolism. That is absolutely squashing the crowd's fervor. Because let me read from an Old Testament prophecy mentioned here, Zechariah 9, which John quotes from verse 15. And as I read this prophecy that Jesus is like shouting back at the crowd by getting on the donkey, you tell me what riding a young donkey symbolizes about what kind of king Jesus is. So this is from Zechariah 9.9. The king comes gentle riding on a donkey. He will... Take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. Through him, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. He's not denying he's king. He didn't enter on foot. Quite the opposite. 
But he also didn't enter on a chariot or a war horse. What he's saying is, I'm not that kind of king. And one commentator writes this. Jesus deliberately demilitarizes the crowd's vision and declares the nature of his messianic rule, a rule of peace, gentleness, and universality. Nothing further from a nationalistic view of the Messiah could be imagined. And all of that so far contains what we've already covered now. It's the first, it's the first three out of four insights about Jesus' kingship. The first one being that his kingship is spiritual. By which I mean it's not national, it's not political, it's not social. It operates on a totally different level than all of those things. It's infinitely bigger than any of those things and deeper and longer lasting. At his trial in a few chapters, Jesus will very famously say these words in John 18. My kingdom, he says to Pilate, is not of this world. Here the crowd wanted it to be of this world. They're saying things like, King of Israel, which is kind of misquoting Psalm 118. They're waving palm branches. But, but his kingdom is not of this world because it's infinitely bigger and deeper and longer lasting and on a totally different level from merely politics or, or sociology or nationalism. Has implications that are national and political and social. Has implications for modern day slavery, and knife crime and political corruption and inequality and not trashing our planet gratuitously. And as good people, we should care about those things and be engaged. But the point here is that those areas are not what his kingship is fundamentally about. As proved by the fact that there are plenty of non-Christians, some of whom might hate Jesus and Christianity, who are passionately engaged in those same areas. Jesus' kingship is not fundamentally about making this world a better place. That is only going to happen fully and properly when he returns and he'll be taking care of that himself. No, his kingship is spiritual. It is fundamentally about things like repenting of sin, trusting in the cross for our forgiveness, being filled by the Spirit, dwelling in the Word, reaching out to the lost, the eternal world to come. And so what does this spiritual nature of Jesus' kingship mean for us in practice? And just one implication is that it means we don't throw ourselves angrily into what I call culture wars. Uh, we, we care about the things in our world that are sad and bad, we don't let them steal the agenda because Jesus' agenda for us is the, the kind of spiritual things that you'll just find the Bible and the Gospels chock-a-block of. Uh, repentance, faith, the Spirit, the Word, uh, reaching out to others, loving, um, you know, eternity to come. Um, so that would be, that'd be one thing. We don't get sucked into cultures and just condemn the world and throw all our time and energy into pointing out everything that's wrong and bad and people need to behave. And that, that, that's... That, that's one thing. Another implication of his kingship being spiritual will be to do with how we invest our limited precious time, how we invest our limited precious money, our limited precious energy, how we invest redeemers, corporate limited precious time and money and energy. Um, it is a strategic tragedy when the Christian pound and the Christian hour are sucked into causes that non-Christian resources are already being poured into. Because our top priority is unique. Our top priority isn't shared by anyone else, by definition, if they're not Christian. Our top priority, the thing that, that, that dwarfs all the other needs in the world put together, is urging people to come under the kingship of Jesus and encouraging those already under it to keep going and enjoying it. And, and just to reiterate, we should care about all of the other needs in this world. We shouldn't be callous. We need to be compassionate. And we can be engaged 
We shouldn't be callous and say it's not important, but we should also remember that what matters most is Jesus being recognized and rejoiced in as the true king. And that's what should shape our short lives. Not, not rushing from fire to fire, trying to put them all out, because this world has plenty of those. They're going to be taken care of. And so we don't shape our lives as if we're living for, you know, Jesus the social worker, Jesus the crime stopper, Jesus the rights activist, Jesus the eco-warrior, Jesus the politician. We need all of those types of people in this world. And, and they're noble, wonderful professions, and I hope more and more Christians go into those areas. But, but we live for Jesus, the supernatural eternal king, who will fix all of the above when he brings in the new creation, and who said at his trial, in the meantime, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, second, we're reminded here that Jesus' kingship is universal. So the crowds are chanting, King of Israel, King of Israel. They're waving palm branches. But Jesus is pointing to Zechariah 9, which talks about how the Messiah will, quote, proclaim peace to the nations, how his rule will, quote, extend to the ends of the earth. And then in beautiful, very, very typical for John, irony, Look at how the Pharisees describe Jesus' followers at the end of verse 19. Have a look at the end of verse 19. Who do they say is going after Jesus now? Someone tell me. The world, the whole world. Thanks, Vanilla. And not for the first time. They're speaking much truer than they realize. They think they're just exaggerating. It's a figure of speech. They actually put their finger on it without realizing it, which is also signaled to us by the very last word of the very next verse. So have a look at the last word of verse 20. That's John making the same point to us again. You see the hint he's dropping? Jesus' kingship is not just for Jews. It's for the world. We've got Greeks coming in, for example. It's universal. And as Jesus will say to his disciples in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Great, the crowd are up for that. Judea, yeah, okay. Samaria, mm. But Jesus goes on and the ends of the earth. So every Monday night, I take my oldest to Lego Club, and he loves it. And the kids are in one classroom, and our parents, us parents hang out in the next-door classroom, mainly dads. And um, I don't know about you, but personally, when I start to get to know other people and make friends, I can sometimes be a little bit guilty of assuming who may or may not be more or less likely to become a Christian. And so one of the other dads I've been getting to know recently is, well, let's call him Peter. Um, he's a lovely guy. He's a massively um, committed, practicing Muslim. He's got a, got a big beard. He goes to mosque every Friday. He knows the West Croydon Mosque. Uh, he, he memorizes big passages from the Quran. He's a very practicing Muslim. Well, as it turns out, he's actually fascinated by Christianity. And in fact, just last week in the hearing of all the other parents, which was a little bit awkward, um, he had me open my Bible with him. We basically did a Bible study at his request. And normally a Bible study is when you know, the, 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 the Christian is the one asking the questions and pointing to the answers. He was asking the questions and then finding the answers himself. And I was just sitting there going, yes, amen, great, I agree. Um, and he's full of questions. And, and so tomorrow night, I, I'm really excited. I'll be lending him this, lent to me by one of you guys. Awesome book. Seeking Allah, finding Jesus. And I'm praying for his salvation, and I, I, I really pray that we all get to meet him one day, that he'll be walking in here in the future. But the point is that in our minds, we shouldn't discount anyone at all from coming under Jesus' kingship. 
As someone once put it, no one is safe. You know, God's grace and love and kindness can erupt anywhere, anytime, without warning. As John put it back in chapter 1, he's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And as well as, as, as not subconsciously discriminating against people or discounting them in our personal evangelism, another implication of his kingship being universal is that we need to be committed to world mission as a church. Gambia, west coast of Africa, massively Muslim country, lots of unreached people. That's not a reason for not sending our prayers and our money and our people. That makes it all the better for send, a place for sending our prayers and money and people. And, and just last night, I was, I was telling our, our boys over the dinner table about this awesome Redeemer tr- tradition of a, an annual trip, which some demons left on yesterday. And my sons cannot wait to come on it with me as soon as they're old enough. And I can't wait for them to come. What an amazing lesson that would be to them of the universality of Jesus' kingship. And, and Brian earlier in his testimony shared about how it was seeing Christians in a different culture, radically different, but yet the same God and the same gospel. That, that made some pennies drop for him. Um, if I could just pick up one last implication. All of these features are so rich in, in implications. Here's just one more before we move on. It would be that we should expect and rejoice in and embrace being a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. I think at the last count there were slightly over 30 different nationalities represented among us over the two meetings. And, and I used to, but before I you know, came and started Redeemer, I sort of shrugged my shoulders at things like that and think, well, that's a nice to have. It doesn't really matter that much. I have a totally different view on this now, just from reading the Bible. It is so precious and so beautiful and a foretaste of heaven. But what it means is we have to be so, so careful to guard our unity and, and to be on the lookout for racism, even casual, unthinking, unconscious racism. And be patient with each other if some of us do things differently or have different attitudes because of cultural backgrounds. And remove cultural stumbling blocks that we may not even be aware we're, we're putting in there. And, and take time and love and effort to, to get to know each other and, and, and love each other, however hard that might be because of differences in language or habits or attitudes. And just to extend that a tiny bit, a personal passion of mine is one day for us to have people up front signing, doing sign language, so that we can have more and more deaf people coming in here because Jesus' kingship is universal. That would be beautiful too, but it would also be so authentic because his kingship really is universal. Um, The third thing about his kingship in these verses is that it's peaceable. There's one more to go after this. and The last one is different to all of the first three. But the, 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 the last one in the verses we've already looked at is that his kingship's peaceable. For example, just look at the first two words of verse 15. The start of the quotation, Jesus is deliberately shouting back at the crowd by getting on the donkey. The first two words of 15. Fear not. Or, or think back to the lines in that prophecy of uh, Zechariah that he's referencing. Uh, the king comes gentle, riding on a donkey. The colt of a foal. Uh, donkey, uh, the, the, a donkey, and even more than that, a, a, a young donkey is a symbol of great humility, the opposite to a war horse. Or um, he will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. Through him the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. 
As one scholar writes, the imagery in Zechariah is framed as a conscious alternative to militaristic rule. As a gentle kingdom, it will uphold the rights of the vulnerable and the oppressed. Implication of that for us, one of many, would be that that sets the tone for the kind of people we're to be. If that's what our king is like, that sets the tone for the kind of atmosphere and culture we're to be setting. If our king is a king whose approach is heralded by the kind and loving words, do not fear, and if our king fulfills prophecies to do with gentleness and ending conflict and proclaiming peace, then it should be pretty obvious what kind of a people we're called to be. And here's how Paul colors some of that in for us in Romans 12. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, and so on and so on. We follow a king of the most amazing peace. That has to be the atmosphere we cultivate as a family. And, you know, so anyone here got some conflict right now bubbling away with someone else in the church family? Just let it go. Forgive. Walk away. Let it go. Maybe over refreshments afterwards. It's going to be really awkward. Just, just go up to them. If, if they're a hugging kind of person, give them a hug. Or, or if they're not, ask if you can get them a cup of tea or ask how their family are. Our king is a king of peace. Or anyone here feeling a little bit crushed by life and beaten up and vulnerable, insecure? Well, if so, you're in the right place. But we have a king of peace and comfort and gentleness. And as well as our diversity, I love that we're a church, I would definitely say, with more than its fair share of vulnerable people. That, too, is so authentic. It's what you should expect if we have a king of gentleness. Life can feel like a storm. We have a king of peace. Final thing for us to note about Jesus' kingship, which really sticks out and jars and is different from all of the previous three, is that it's the last bit of the passage, and it's that finally his kingship, as well as being spiritual, universal, and peaceable, is divisive. And we see this, like I say, in the final verses. So verses 17 and 18, we see the crowd starting to witness to others and to each other about Jesus. It's great. We're reminded in verses 17 and 18 that they've followed him because of what they've seen about his identity. They've seen a wonderful sign, the raising of Lazarus. And, and we're left thinking, brilliant, everything's good. That's one path. And then we get verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You hear the bitterness and the, and the hostility in their voice. Here's how one commentator puts it. Some will welcome Jesus with enthusiasm. Others, however, will plot his downfall. For this world is a fallen territory where the prince of this world, which is the phrase the New Testament uses to describe the devil, holds his unauthorized sway. The coming of the king therefore produces the conflict of the kingdoms. The coming of the king means the usurping of our rebel, our rebel kingdoms, the denial of our sinful independence. Not surprisingly, many are not drawn to that option and choose to resist. Each of us must take sides. There is no neutrality. So let's just be including that grid, that stark antithesis that is actually a big theme in John's Gospel in how we view humanity. Let's allow the, the honest 
starkness of that truth to, to drive the urgency of our evangelism. And let's also expect opposition ourselves. If, if the world is standing back just applauding your Christian faith, then nice for those Christians though that might be, it's not what the Bible tells Christians to expect if they're being truly faithful. But equally, if everyone's against a Christian, it may not necessarily just be because he or she's being really faithful and courageous. It may be because he or she's also being a jerk. We follow a king whose kingship, in this world at least, is fundamentally divisive. So let's let that drive our urgency to witness to others, even others who seem nice and normal and neutral, because there is no thing as neutrality. But let's also let it give us realistic expectations for what we should expect. Some will be drawn to us and find us attractive, and others will be repelled. Jesus' kingship is divisive. As Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We have an amazing king. And the kind of king he is changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a moment. It would have been so easy for you to just do what Satan had already tried to tempt you to do and give in and take the glory and the honor and, and, the, and the quick win and egg on this crowd of maybe hundreds of thousands of people and be a hero and fulfill their expectations and be a nationalistic, militaristic, victorious, powerful king. And yet you knew, Lord Jesus, and you had the integrity to stick to the fact that your kingdom, your kingship is actually spiritual. It's way bigger and deeper and longer lasting and more profound than anything merely militaristic or political or, or, or social. Lord, thank you that your kingship does have implications for those areas. We don't want to be disengaged from the world and be angry, bewildered fundamentalists, isolationists. We want to be engaged and we want to care and be compassionate. But help us remember your kingship is fundamentally spiritual and also that it's universal. So Lord, help us not to discount anyone in our minds. Your kingdom is open for all, no matter what, regardless of anything about the, the people. Thank you that your kingdom is peaceable. And Lord, please, in Redeemer, would there be an atmosphere of, of kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and we will hurt each other. But Lord, please, would we be in the habit of quickly apologizing and, and not holding on to grudges and being kind to each other. And thank you for the reminder that your kingdom is divisive. Would we not be shocked um, when some don't like it, they hate it in us, if we're really standing up for you? But also give us the encouragement of others being strangely attracted and, and, and finding a lot to like about our faith in you. Help us to remember and know deeply what kind of a king you are. And thank you that that is what changes everything. And we pray these things in your name. Thank you that it's by you that our prayers can be heard and answered by your Father. Amen. Amen.